0: This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorp.
1: Welcome everybody to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar at Stanford University. ETL, as you know, is a seminar for aspiring entrepreneurs at Stanford. This is a very special ETL, and we're coming with a watch party here. Um, ETL, as you all know, is presented by STVP, the Stanford Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford entrepreneurial students. I am Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the management science and engineering department at Stanford and a director at Alchemist, an accelerator for enterprise startups. Today, we are thrilled to welcome virtually Andy Dunn to ETL. Now all, um, there is so much to talk about with Andy that I'm gonna give a little bit more of an involved introduction, just so that we can spend the, the limited time we have with Andy on the more meaningful topics of today. And also, because I want to create room for all of you if you have any questions, um, to ask Andy questions and start thinking of those questions. We'll turn it over to the students in about 30 minutes. But Andy is the son of a Midwestern high school history teacher, father, and an immigrant Punjabi Indian ultrasound nurse mother, who's an immigrant who came to the United States and they created Andy. Andy grew up in a solidly middle-class family in the suburbs of Chicago. And today, even today is a diehard Cubs fan. He was preternaturally smart. He skipped the third grade, but school was not always easy. Um, He was teased with a moniker um, uh, from a student in school called calling him a Windu, a white Hindu um, early on. And I think that sort of foreshadowed Andy's ability to straddle between worlds that oftentimes don't overlap. Um, But Andy, went on to go to Northwestern University and graduated with a bachelor's degree in economics and history, and then went on to get a covenanted position at Bain as a management consultant post-college, then another covenanted position in private equity, and then yet another covenanted spot at Stanford, where he came to the farm um, and got an MBA from the Graduate School of Business in 2007. Now at Stanford, his roommate, Brian Sapley, conceived of and put $50,000 of his own money into founding a venture to create better fitted pants for men. That venture would become the e-commerce company that you all know of as Bonobos, but in an unusual founding story, Brian gave the company to Andy to run as CEO while Brian joined a private equity firm post Stanford when he got his MBA. In fact, I think the same private equity firm that Andy was at prior. Um, Andy also had covenanted offers. He had an offer to join a venture capital firm, which many people go to Stanford Business School just to get, but he turned that down and he cashed in his 401k and put his soul behind Bonobos as the CEO and then a joined co-founder. And Brian would later return as Bonobos succeeded. And ultimately Brian and Andy would then part ways yet again in a founder divorce that if we have time was intense and we may be able to talk about that today. The Bonobos would go on to raise over $125 million from luminary VCs like Lightspeed and Excel and Forerunner, and eventually would sell to Walmart for $310 million. Um, And Andy's on several lists. You know, he's included in the Forbes 40 Under 40. He's in Business Insiders, 100 People Transforming the World of Business. And right now, today, um, Andy splits his time between Chicago and Rio de Janeiro, um, where he lives with his Brazilian entrepreneur wife and their son. But Andy is also an author and quite a riveting one, I should say at that. And I think the creation of his book may have been the biggest impact on the world, even more than Bonobos. And um, he has recently authored a book called Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. And in it, um, in fact, this is a recently put out just last year in 2022, Andy has gone public that he's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, And he's making this announcement, I believe it's been 22 years since that diagnosis. And the reason why it's partly it's been taken 22 years is because of the public shame around talking about mental health and being bipolar. And so part of the intention today is to really lift that shame and to have sort of a collective conversation with the Stanford entrepreneurial community and the broader community that joins um, talking about Mental health and shedding light on something that very few people are willing to talk about. So it's so rare for us to have someone with such pronounced success, but also be open about their mental health um, as Andy is. So everybody, please welcome Andy to ETL. Andy, lots of love for you. I know you can't feel you can't physically feel it, but I hope you just know that there's lots of energetic love coming at you. Um, Andy, I'd love to start off just by talking about um, in the book, um, you talk about this overlap, you have some prof- some impressive numbers and research on the overlap of neurodiversity and entrepreneurship.
0: Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so while I was writing the book, I learned that for American adults, there might be 2% of folks who deal with some form of mood disorder or bipolar. The University of California or San Francisco has a center where they study entrepreneurship and mental illness. And their research suggests that that number is 11% in the entrepreneurial population. So it indexes five to one. So now when someone with bipolar approaches me and says, hey, is it okay to be an entrepreneur? Should I do this? I say, of course, you're five times more likely to be successful, right? There's a five times higher rate. And as we go through other stripes of neurodiversity, ADHD, OCD, high-functioning autism or Asperger's, unipolar depression, other issues like addiction, they all over-index in neurodivergent populations. And so I think it is high time to acknowledge that our strengths often have shadows, but those shadows need not consume us if we find a way to hold ourselves accountable to getting better, and the getting better requires the disclosure. We can't get better if we're not honest with ourselves our families, our friends, and our colleagues. And a big part of that, as you so articulately put it, is expunging the shame that so unfairly and unjustly accompanies mental health challenges. And I think we can do it. I think it's happening in real time. And I think I'm a tiny part of the way the zeitgeist is changing right now. Well, I think it takes these,
1: you know, these quote unquote tiny parts to, to create movements. And, you know, we have seen like Elon Musk has sort of self-professed that he's has Asperger's or he's on the spectrum and he's hinted that other very financially successful entrepreneurs are, even though they haven't sort of felt comfortable to divulge that. And there yeah. is this strange conundrum where the very virtues that I think we trumpet in entrepreneurship, the bold visionary who's able to paint an alternative future despite improbable odds of success overlaps with some of the um, symptoms and things that will present themselves also in things that we classify as mental disorders. Um, can you talk about that? Can you talk about how the entrepreneurial journey is shaped by a mood disorder? And where is it healthy? Where is it unhealthy? And when should you, you know, be grateful? Is, there, when is it When is it a virtue and when is it a vice?
0: Yeah, so I wanna talk about hypomania. We may be familiar more so with depression, it affects 20% of the population. We think it was up to 50% of American adults during COVID. By those numbers, we have so much personal experience with it, or we have loved ones who've gone through it. So depression, we can understand. And unfortunately for bipolar, for bipolar 1 in particular, the depression can become so crushingly catatonic that the suicide attempt rate for bipolar 1 over a lifetime is 60%. In the suicide rate for bipolar is 19%. And so picture being 20 years old, and there are definitively by stats, people in this this audience who have been through this, you're fine one day, and then this thing happens to you, you're diagnosed, typically, that's either a major episode of depression, or a major episode of psychosis, or what you could also call mania, which we'll get into. And all of a sudden, you learn that there's a one in five chance that you're going to end your own life. The most probable way that you'll die is by suicide. And that is just unacceptably too high. And I believe we can bring that way down and we're bringing it way down because of advances in treatments, advances in the quality of medical care, and also so critically advances in us having conversations, noticing folks who are suffering and finding ways to get them help. On the flip side, we have mania. And what is mania? Mania is typically delusions of grandeur, racing speech, the flight of ideas, messianic zeal, a decreased need for sleep, risk-seeking behaviors, sexually, financially, and otherwise, intersection with substance use. All of these ingredients can lead one to a place of having a, a psychotic break, one where you no longer have your feet rooted on the ground. And so often that comes with delusions of being super powerful in some way. For me, my first episode, I thought I was God. It was the turn of the millennium. It was turning from 1999 to 2000. I remember watching a TV show, a bunch of folks praying for the return of the second coming. I was smoking a lot of pot. I had done mushrooms for the first time. I was drinking a lot. I was partying like it's 1999, which is literally, I think, a print song. And the millennium was turning, and I went off the rails. And I had this moment after a few nights of sleeping less and less. And my friends and family helped me stitch together. I was writing the book that we think I was up four nights in a row with zero sleep, four nights. And I came to this conclusion of, oh, I know who God is. God is coming back. It's me. And one of the things that makes bipolar so humiliating to talk about is this idea that we thought that and how embarrassing that that is. And it took, I was probably 200 sessions deep with my psychiatrist. So maybe it took a year of two sessions a week to begin to be able to talk about that without being embarrassed, to realize that we're all incepted with a God delusion as infants. We get everything we need. If we survive infancy, every time we cried, we were comforted. Every time we wanted food, we were given food, mother's milk or or formula as it were. And so we have this amazing sense that the universe is a safe place. In the womb, I mean, talk about the womb is a beautiful place to be, right? It's just, it's a it's a perfect state. And then we learn as small children that our parents are gonna die. And later we're gonna die. And our culture is just filled with stories of superheroes and superpowers. It is the stuff of most religions. It is the stuff of, you know, what does Disney do other than educate us on our parents' eventual demise and the fact that we're gonna transcend that? Harry Potter, Marvel, DC comics. And so the problem with someone going into a manic state is they let that little thought slip through. Hey, maybe I have superpowers and they don't disbelieve that thought. And that then leads to terrible things. And so the week that you spend, and I don't know those of you that have been God for a week, I've got to tell you, it's very fun. It's like, it's very exciting to be the Messiah for a week, but it is a nightmare for everyone else. It is a nightmare for everyone else in your life, trying to figure out how you get back to the ground and that requires sleep, medication, typically hospitalization. And then you come out of that, and bam, this sledgehammer diagnosis hits. And unfortunately, the result, you talked about my biracial family, one thing that the Indians and the Scandinavians had in common was no talking about mental health. You know, we don't talk about mental illness. And so it became this ghost lurking in the background. Um, and, And later we can go deeper if you'd like on, I'll give you the highlight on a mood state called hypomania, which is very difficult to discern. Hypomania is just like mania, a lot of the energy and a lot of the delusion, but without fully leaving the stratosphere. And for better, for worse, those criteria for hypomania that I laid out, convergent with those for mania, are more or less the central casting traits of an entrepreneur having a good day. What is an entrepreneur, if not someone with delusional self-belief? What is an entrepreneur but someone who has a flight of ideas? What is an entrepreneur but someone who might be working too hard and sleeping too little? What is an entrepreneur other than someone having relentless energy and potentially indulging in high-risk behaviors? When it runs amok, we get you know really calamitous, the calamitous examples that we have out there, right? People who really start drinking their own Kool-Aid and we, we can see it in the news. You can turn on the news right now. And so I think our job as a Stanford community which is such a wonderful community, such a birthplace for entrepreneurial innovation, is to figure out how do we approach being an entrepreneur with a mindset of having great mental hygiene, of taking care of our brains. And I think we can do it. I think it's possible. And I think it's beautiful that this conversation is happening, because it's a great community to be talking about this.
1: I think it is as well. And I think a part of it is just actually navigating this conversation so that we actually can have the conversation and hold space to actually talk about these things that can be difficult. And a lot of this is actually, you know, undoing the shame is sharing these stories. And um, a lot of this is documented in the book for those who don't know. um, Andy, your first manic experience was in college, um, as you sort of detailed and you sort of gave a quick overview of it. Um, But one of the themes that I think came up in the book that I really want to make sure we all internalize is the aftermath of disclosure of what happened after you had all these people who actually saw you in this state. Um, Can you share about that and then how that shaped you? And and you already hinted at that a bit, but um, so you, you have just for everybody. So you have this manic experience the first time in your life in college um, you're in a fraternity. Your fraternity brothers actually all come to the hospital. They've yeah. they, everybody's seen you in, and also your friends and and family have seen you in the in, in the ward. And then, yeah. can you share what happens after?
0: It's sort of uh, if it weren't so difficult. It's sort of fascinating what happens. There is a small group of people who know exactly what happened. In my case, my family and my close friends who never talked about it. And then everyone who I met after that, who never knew what had happened. So it was a secret from everyone I would meet going forward. It was known by a select group of loved ones who never discussed it. And so I wrestled with what you might call a traumatic memory. It was um, once a month or so, I would think about it. I would have a rising panic. Oh, my God, I have this thing. And we do something really cruel with bipolar and other mental illnesses, which is we conflate the identity with the illness. We say someone is bipolar rather than they have it. We would never say someone is cancer. That would be a terrible thing to say. We say they have cancer. And yet with mental illness, the moment that you are diagnosed, you no longer just have to deal with this new illness. You actually are the illness in the eyes of society. Imagine being a disorder. And that was how I felt for for 20 years. And then the beautiful thing that happened in my life story is when the mania recurred 16 years later and it caused a reckoning for me and for everyone, then it was, we were all in a different world. We were in a world of transparency, acceptance. How do we deal with this? How do we fight it? How do we navigate it? And it was a funny thing, Uh, you know, and I'll just give the headlines on the story. I had a second, catastrophic manic episode in 2016. I, at that time, was in a different place. I was 36 years old. I had an awesome girlfriend. I was ready to settle down. Bonobos had 600 employees. We had 60 stores. We'd raised, as you alluded to, over 100 million of capital. We had over 100 million in our business. Had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot more to lose in some ways, depending on how you define loss. And I had this terrible episode, same thing messianic delusion, this time I thought I was a hybrid of the dark knight and the president, which by the way, is a badass combo, right? Can you imagine it? Batman in the Oval Office. Um, and unfortunately, after a week in the hospital and I was ready to be discharged, I was discharged straight in the handcuffs. Four NYPD pl- uh, police officers arrested me. They took me straight to the sixth precinct in Greenwich Village across from my favorite restaurant. I'd never even noticed it was there. And I was arrested and charged with felony and misdemeanor assault. Because during the mania, I was naked, I was trying to run into the street as this Batman president hybrid, and I struck my now wife and now mother-in-law. And that led to a very difficult six months uh, afterwards of going through the legal system, trying to figure out if I was going to have to step down from the company. And most importantly, was I going to lose the love of my life? Was I going to lose this job that I cared for so deeply? Was I going to lose my reputation, depending on what news may come out of it? And I remember talking to my arresting officer in jail, and I said, as he took my mugshots, are these gonna be on the internet? And he turned to me and he goes, dude, you're not the founder of Google. You just sell pants. And it was a moment of comic levity, but it was true. I think for a lot of people, we feel like what happens with mental health or mental illness can limit or ruin our career. And so part of the journey here is, how do we make disclosure of mental health issues and of mental illness not a career limiting move, but maybe even one day, almost like a career enhancing move. Like this person has this superpower and we're all attuned to it. We're all here to help that individual stay healthy because we recognize that there's some beauty in it and there's some potential for creativity and high performance, depending on what it is. And I think we can, and you raised Elon and I think he's a fascinating example, right? He's the most influential entrepreneur on the planet. And he, he took some interesting venues, disclosing being on the autism spectrum on Saturday Night live. And then apparently disclosing having bipolar disorder in his new book. Uh, I can't comment on any of that. But I think um, we come to expect people who are doing innovative things to have something quote unquote crazy about them. And I'll just close this little section of our talk with uh, my editor at Penguin Random House wanted to call the book, here's to the crazy ones. After the Steve Jobs Apple commercial, after he got fired from Apple and came back, and talked about how effectively the crazy ones are the ones that change our society. I took umbrage at that title because I didn't want to additionally stigmatize the idea of "quote unquote" being crazy. I think it's a choice of someone who is dealing with mental health issues or mental illness if they want to self-describe in that way. I actually don't mind describing that you know self-describing that way, but I didn't want to impose that on anyone on anyone else. Um, and so I, I think that's that's kind of the job here, the job to be done. Is how do we unlock the potential if we can call it that of that quote unquote craziness maybe better put neurodiversity but not be taken down by it not not have it do harm to ourselves and to others
1: and so i want to navigate that because i do think that
0: that is the path and
1: um even if you don't have a diagnosis on mental health there's always this there's always something about bringing your full self to any situation which can be confronting um and you know, it was 16 years since you had the first manic episode that you had the second. But yeah. when you um, went to Bain, I assume you told no one. Um, no. When you went to the private equity firm, no one.
0: One fraternity brother from Northwestern who knew something had happened because he was friends and there was chatter. And I remember him looking at me. I'd already gotten the offer. And he just said, hey, are you are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm good. Like, what do you mean? Right. And so it was always a thing in my mind. Did he tell my colleagues or not? And and one of the wonderful things about this disclosure now that I've done it is I've realized nobody really cares as long as you're doing well. No one is sitting there obsessing, hey, what mental health issues is Ravi dealing with? No one cares. Maybe your wife would care, your children, your friends, but we have this fundamental attribution error where we think that people are really focused on us, it turns out they're focused on themselves. And so the amazing thing about disclosure of challenge, whether it's mental health related or not, is it draws other people into our life story. It helps them feel more connected to us. The paradox of leadership in the 21st century, to give kind of the the corny way of saying it, is that we're drawn more to vulnerability than we are to stoicism. And so I argue in the business setting, don't disclose how you're doing because it's gonna be healthy for you alone. Don't disclose it just because it's gonna create a safe space for others. Disclose it because it's actually gonna make you a better leader. It's gonna make you someone that other people wanna follow more. And then the additional benefit is a beautiful one, which is you then make space for other people to share what they're dealing with. And I'd like to add on one thing to what you said, which is that we, you know, we all have mental health, right? I'm, I'm affiliated with a not-for-profit called Project Healthy Minds. They have the saying, we all have mental health. You don't need to be in the quote unquote subset of people that have a diagnosable mental illness, which we think might be as high as 35 to 50% of entrepreneurial populations, right? To have a mental health crisis affect you in a meaningful way at some point in your life. Let's talk about other mental health crises, a breakup the death of a parent, the death of a friend, the loss of someone in your world to suicide, financial stress, fear of financial ruin, career challenges, self-esteem challenges, postpartum and partum issues, eating disorders, addiction. There, 100% of us deal with an acute mental health challenge at some point, and the entrepreneurial journey certainly foists those on us, right? There's a lot of stress of self-esteem, of the ego, financial stress. So what we can do here is we can expand the aperture and include everyone in this auditorium and say we all have opportunities at some point in our lives to improve our mental health, to disclose our challenges, to get better together. And by the way, it's gonna draw everyone in around us, which, is, which has just been a wonderful thing to realize that this secret that I had bottled up actually was the key to connecting with other people in a more meaningful way.
1: And I want to but I, so I want to double click on this because I think that is the heart of this whole narrative is the power of vulnerability to actually create connection. Um yeah. but it's difficult. So you, you so we can say this conceptually but I want the students to actually internalize this and I want to I want to look at both sides. There's the receiver who's receiving that information and they can do something and then there's also, you know, the giver who's who's divulging situation because you are obviously a very smart soul and but even you i think even if you cognitively knew this stuff you you didn't disclose it at bain you didn't disclose it in the private equity firm at stanford you created a speaker series on vulnerability on people sharing vulnerable shares and so you knew the power of that but you still decided not to um and then there are moments in the book where you actually do take the leadership I view as a as leadership stance of, of exposing vulnerability and it, it's not received well. Uh, so, you know, I think 15 years later, it's the first time you actually tell somebody and it's your girlfriend at the time. And then she breaks up with you. And then your aunt comes and you, you, you're vulnerable by your aunt and your aunt doesn't, who's a doctor, yeah. um, doesn't have the discussion. So what I want to talk about is in those moments when you inspire the students to actually say, this is a moment of, of growth and I, for the sake of my team I'm going to make myself vulnerable. Yeah. But then the world doesn't, you know, receive your your vulnerability. Um uh how do you how do you respond in that moment?
0: Well, I think first it's important to acknowledge the privilege that I have as a exited entrepreneur who's had success, who's had who has financial independence to be able to disclose. And so I feel like my job is to use that privilege to have this conversation. And I invite all leaders, anyone who's had success, to to acknowledge that we have an obligation societally to go first, because it's not going to jeopardize a career that's already had major milestones. And the goal would be that you can disclose on the way up. But I think it's important to recognize that disclosure is not everything. And it's not to everyone. I'm just um, of the opinion that we don't have to go all the way with disclosure. We can start the way that we would with a minimum viable prototype in an entrepreneurial endeavor with an experiment. And an experiment might be disclosing to your Uber or your Lyft driver or the person that cuts your hair or the stranger at a bar. And then the next step is disclosing to a maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's not a close friend and you try it on for size. And sometimes we have to work backwards to our closest loved ones. Sometimes we have to work backwards to our best friends. Sometimes we have to work backwards to our colleagues. If you do disclose in the workplace, maybe you start with you know someone who, you know almost certainly you start with someone who isn't your boss or the head of HR. And it's a muscle, right? Disclosure is a muscle that we have to build. And I think it's a muscle that is best accompanied by therapy. Because therapy is the weekly, ideally the weekly practice of sitting with someone who is helping you increase your self-understanding. And by the way, they're mental health professionals. Like this is what, this is what they do. And I've had some funny moments with my psychiatrist where I think, gosh, can I tell him this? Can I tell him that I had this thought? Right? Can I tell him that when my infant child was born, I was worried, would I ever hurt him? Because I had I had hurt my now wife. That was a hard thing to say I was worried about, but it might've consumed me if I hadn't shared it. And so this is so critical to recognize the opportunity that therapy has to help us on this journey towards disclosure, to help us manage our mental health. And I recommend to anyone, if you have the good fortune to be able to access and pay for therapy, which I think is something that we have to, continually bring the cost down of an increased access to. Really excited to be a part of something called the Founder Mental Health Pledge, where venture capitalists will now be putting in term sheets. 167 have signed on to this, that they support founders taking care of their mental health, including expensing out-of-pocket, non-reimbursable stuff from health insurance. And I think for anyone, the cleanest bill of mental health that you might imagine Being in therapy for six months every two to three years is just a game changer for your development as a person and your performance as a leader. And then on that journey, you know, we get to milestones where the disclosure might be more meaningful. It doesn't have to start with the fireside chat to the auditorium. That's that's like the, the, I don't don't wanna call this the end of the road, but you know, I'm um, seven years deep really on processing and synthesizing what happened with the second episode. And I'm 23 years deep from the diagnosis and it's just too long, it's too long. So we need to find ways to decrease the time between being in acute mental distress and being able to talk about it and address it. That's the goal here.
1: Yeah, and better late than never, you're, you've are you come back and you're, you're doing a speak, you're, you're the highlight VIP keynote speaker. At a Stanford speaker series on vulnerability, so it's great. Um, but I wanted to sort of dive in, uh, Andy, then on the other side is is that if somebody does reveal a mental health diagnosis to you, your yeah. your life was littered with examples where people responded to the disclosure with silence, and and I felt like, and it felt like one of the big themes, or at least maybe I misinterpreted, but one of the big themes of the book was that silent that 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 response led you to be even more um, um, shy about disclosing in the future. And, and it led to this 22 year you know, gap between actually revealing um, the, the condition. And so it, it felt like when you did disclose, people just clammed up and just chose to ignore what you actually said or not actually have the conversation. How yeah. should somebody respond? So if somebody does yeah. um, make themselves vulnerable, what is the right response?
0: The be there certificate which was funded by Lady Gaga, is a 30-minute video-based training on how to deploy the universal human trait of empathy to have a conversation about mental health with someone who either you're concerned about or who's sharing something with you. And I have to say, when the book came out, I got this question a lot, and I had a bunch of answers that I tried to wing it with, right? Like, the irony of this is I'm not a mental health professional, I'm a mental health patient. And then I finally got to this video, I got a chance to do something cool with Lady Gaga. And almost everything I had thought was the right thing to do was wrong. So for example, one of the common thoughts is wait till someone has raised something with you, don't pry, don't be invasive. And no, now the right thing to do is to wait two weeks until you have an observed behavior for two weeks and then to say in a fact-based way, Hey, Ravi, I've noticed you just, you, you haven't had your natural light the last couple of weeks. You're not speaking as, you're not talking as much. I, I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. How are you doing? And that's just one example of many. An- another one that I thought was helpful was someone, for example, said could say to me, hey, I've got this issue, I've got, I've got bipolar. The, r- the right thought might be to be like, me too, wrong. Once someone has put the spotlight on themselves, it's important to stay with them. And then in a follow-up conversation, you can express solidarity because sometimes the equivalency is unhelpful, right? Someone could say, hey, I'm feeling really depressed right now. And they might be at like a one out of 10 suicidal ideation. And you might say something like, I get depressed too. And be at like a 4.8 out of 10 because you're just like in a mild funk. They're both important. But there could be a false equivalency and it could deflate someone who's now making a bid. And I had a friend in college who was drinking a fair amount and he looked at me and he said, do you ever just feel black sometimes? Just kind of black inside? And I thought, no, I said no. And he died by suicide three years later. And when it happened, I, when it happened, I remember thinking like, of course this wasn't a surprise. That was a bid that I missed. I'm not gonna take it on and say, It's my fault what happened, but I missed a bid. And so when someone makes a bid, it can be just the tiniest comment and we have to lean in. I have a friend who texted me on WhatsApp two weeks ago. He said something along the lines of like, you know, I'm just not feeling it these days. And one thought might be like, he's just not feeling it these days. And another thought would be like, he could be in crisis. This is a very stoic entrepreneur, works out all the time, got the quote unquote, Perfect wife and family, and it's got a unicorn company. And I thought, I'm gonna get right in there. I just hit FaceTime. Just hit FaceTime right away. And I said, Hey man, you know, how you doing? Let's talk. And he was in tears within five minutes, which was a beautiful thing, right? Because what what are tears? Tears are pain leaving the body. Because he he wasn't talking to anyone about this. He's not a mental health person, quote unquote. He doesn't come from a culture. Where there's a norm of talking to a therapist, I couldn't even get him to do it now. (laughs) But I said, "All right, let's keep talking to you and me, and then maybe at some point you can upgrade and talk to someone that really knows what they're what they're doing."
1: So the takeaways, and and, and was there a a a thirty minute um, video to watch? I forgot.
0: It's a Canadian not for profit, and it's called the Be There Certificate. The be there certificate.
1: So if people Google that, they can find the guidance.
0: It's like video based. You'll get the questions wrong, which will intrigue you. Okay. I like it a lot. I think it's a good primer. It certainly has been a a, a river guide for me,
1: but it sounds like the thing to do is not to diffuse what they're saying by trying to displace it onto yourself and just be, put your attention on them and then um, just be empathetic. Just be there and listen and ask, be curious and empathetic.
0: Listen, ask make it clear that this doesn't change a thing about the affinity that you have for them, or if you, if appropriate, the love that you have for them, and then to recognize you now are a co-pilot in making sure that they get help. That that's very, that's hard, but it includes things like being like, Hey, can I help set up an appointment for you to talk to someone? Like, I don't know. Are you interested in seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist? Happy to take the lead? Because if, if you're in the throes of depression, you can barely walk to the kitchen to pour a bowl of cereal. You're not going to get on the internet and research what psychiatrist is the right fit for you. And so we have an opportunity to recognize that someone in crisis is probably, in, it's improbable that they're going to be able to secure their own care. And so we have a chance to help them. Say like, hey, what, what, what are some things you're open to? Get on the internet, learn what are some potential treatments for those symptoms and help that person get to help. And you can imagine if it's addiction, you know, we can imagine so many ways that you can be helpful to someone that might not be in a position to get that help for themselves.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Um, let me turn it over now to the students. There is a watch party happening.
0: Um, I'm curious to ask you, how would you navigate or mend personal relationships if you're suffering from uh, mental health issues, for example, people that you might have hurt during your past um, when you're having an episode. Like, how do you overcome that sense of guilt and shame, and moving forwards as well? How do you potentially get close and overcome the fear of hurting additional people? Yeah, that, that those are such great questions. I think one important thing, and Ravi alluded to it, is it's never too late. It's never too late to send a quick email or a text message, and say, "Hey, I just wanted to I just wanted to say I'm sorry." for some of the things that transpired between us. Um, I've done some work on myself. I've learned some things about myself. Um, I don't expect you to want to engage on it, but to the extent that you're interested in talking, I'd love to. And, and you might even give some headlines. Hey, I was recently diagnosed with bipolar one um, and I wanted to share that with you. And I wanted to apologize for some things that happened. I'm not trying to blame my behavior on, on that, but I want to let you know I'm in touch with it. I want to take. I want to be accountable, and if you ever wanted to talk again about that, then I, you know I'd be delighted to. And that can that can that'll typically melt someone's heart, right? An apology plus a disclosure plus an invitation to talk, and they may not want to talk right away, but you'll change the temperature in the water. In terms of fear of hurting people in the future, um, I for me it's been about like I got to be on top of my shit. You know what I mean? Like taking medication every day to the milligram, two sessions with my psychiatrist every week, like clockwork. And you got to believe I don't want to some, some weeks tracking my sleep with a Fitbit, sending a screenshot of the sleep report. I call it to my mom, my sister, my wife, and my doctor every day, because sleep and bipolar sleep and mood for all of us actually is so correlated. And then recognizing that kind of in maslow's hierarchy of andy's mental health those are the three pillars therapy medication and sleep and then saying like okay let me go beyond now how do i not engage in you know workism workaholism how do i make space to spend 24 hours off my smartphone every week can i get 15 minutes of sunlight a day which is a great hack i'm sorry i can't do the cold showers it's too cold i just want a hot shower guys but trying to trying to Take the same steps that we would with a physical ailment of doing doing the things and over time um developing the confidence and saying, like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna still cause interpersonal harm, <laughs> but let it be for no, let's let it not be because of this. Let it not be for the thing that, that we know that we're dealing with. It let it be for the unknowns, the unknown unknowns, rather than the known, the known things. Thank you. Sure. Uh- Question. It was an awesome question. Hi, Andy. Uh, thank you for uh, vulnerably sharing your journey. Um, such uh, disorders, uh, mostly behavioral disorders, the ones you mentioned, uh, being on the uh, on the autism spectrum or having ADHD or bipolar, yeah. can that somehow box you in uh, personally? Um, it's almost like you expect yourself to uh, act a certain way yeah. uh, that the you know the 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 medical definition of that disease is, and uh, even people see you that way. No doubt, yeah, as a full person, but like just that those like a checklist of symptoms. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a hidden form of diversity in some ways, right? Can we be boxed in by our gender? Can we be boxed in by our race? Can we be boxed in by our sexuality? These are questions that we've all been interrogating as a society. And these are things that are also on the move as a society, even in my lifetime. You know, I I can remember living in New York, really having connectivity to gay and queer team members for the first time and being like, these folks can't get married. You know, that that was just nine years ago in New York state. I remember being in a amazing show tunes piano bar called Marie's crisis in New York. The day that the freedom of marriage amendment passed in New York state. And it was the, it was the sound of human liberation. I've never heard anything like it to to, a people liberated. And we're on these journeys in so many ways. We're still fighting them. And I think neurodiversity is just another one that we've got to fight. And I think we're doing it. I mean, I don't think I'd be alive if this were the 19th century. Um, You know, you just don't make it out of your 30s with bipolar if you're not dealing with it in so many cases. So many folks who I meet who've got parents with bipolar, their parents are gone, right? Or their childhood was fraught with, with terrible, terrible challenges. We are lucky in this day and age that we can be having this conversation, the quality of the treatments where they are. And so when it comes to mental health, neurodiversity, what we need to do is make sure it's not hidden because otherwise people aren't aware of that diversity. And since we're already bold enough to have people be aware of other forms of diversity because many of them are visual, the only way we can test that out is by it being known. And I'll just make one quick joke, it's not that funny. But one one thing for me, when I did share that I had bipolar to my colleagues at work, I had a lot of conversations like this. Oh, oh, got it. So you're like high and low sometimes. Oh, it, and it was people knew, you know, these are people that were spending 40 or 50 hours a, a, a work week with me. So in many times it actually increases understanding and deepens empathy of something that folks are already aware of, whether unconsciously or consciously, whether they can name it or not.
1: Thank you, and thank you for the question. Um, Next question.
0: Um, My question to you is, how have you seen the VC and investment community um, embracing the diversity that we're discussing, especially when it comes to betting on a founder? Yeah, I would say the VCs that I had that backed me were two Stanford GSB alums. And I can remember coming out of a board meeting and one of them um, from Excel, I said, hey, what, you know, how do you think things are going from your standpoint? And he goes, look, just keep, keep tinkering with every, you know, keep doing what you're doing. The board was aware that I was in therapy. The board was aware that I was taking medications. The board was aware that I was navigating the legal system and they had my back, which was one of the most healing things. And And so I think actually venture capitalists are used to quote unquote dealing with entrepreneurs. So they're they're actually very unfazed, I found. Um, And I think the Founder Mental Health Pledge is an example of that. Like literally just saw it coming to life the last week. Um, But I do think it's appropriate to wait until a a container of trust has been built before you share everything. And and you'll know when that is in your gut. And if you find you're, you're working with someone or potentially working with someone who's an investor and you don't feel like that trust, it's an opportunity to think about raising capital from someone else. Because the right kind of trusting person, loving soul, they're going to meet that with so much grace. And I, I got to see that. Like to a T from you know, all three venture capitalists, even the acquiring company, Walmart, I had to disclose what I'd been through. Picture you're in a $300 million sale process and you have a felony arrest charge on your record. When do you introduce that? My decision was like, right at the end. <laughs> you're like, let's get as far along at this deal as we can. Let me get to know as many people as I can so that they, they know me. And then I said, hey, you're going to find something on the background check. And here's what it is. And the woman that I described this to from HR turned like pale as a ghost. And she said the perfect thing. She said, Andy, I understand. Um, I also understand how common these challenges are. Let me talk to the team and we'll come back to you. And they talked to the team and said, hey, all we need you to do is just share your medical records from your doctor with an outside psychiatrist um, who won't who won't be playing anything back to us spe- in specifics other than just an assessment of how you're doing. And so I said, uh, I asked my doctor, who did they go to? And he goes, I went to the former head of psychiatry for the FBI. And I thought, well, at least we're going to get a clean read here. And then i waited on pins and needles for two weeks and they came back and said hey we we understand you're taking your meds that you're in treatment we're so excited to consummate this transaction let's move forward and i just started crying because the acceptance from a professional environment to say like we understand you have this issue and how calamitous things were and we'll still quote unquote have you you know we'll still take you on and I'll i'll share one other thing which is when i saw my mother-in-law for the first time the week after i got out of jail who the previous time I had seen her was having assaulted her. I thought it would be the last time I'd ever see her. I thought she would say, look, uh, you know, my daughter and I need to need to take a little bit of a break here while you get healthy. And I wasn't able to see Manuela because there was a restraining order of sorts. And as soon as I sat down at lunch, my mother and, now mother-in-law, Lenny, put her hand on my hand and she just said, Andy, this is just like any physical illness. All you've got to do is see your doctor and take your medication. And if you do, and Manuela still wants to be with you, then you have my blessing. But if you don't, you're out. Just like that. And again, just tears coming down my face. Because I always assumed that on some level, no one would ever want to marry me. I always assumed that no other family would take me. My own family has to take me. But I thought no new family would want me. And it wasn't until that moment that I felt the grace of being accepted under the worst possible circumstances. And it, it changed my life. It made this day possible because feeling accepted in spite of this is that's love, right?
1: Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how that reverberates. Um, and then the whole world benefits. Um, that's a great gesture from your mother-in-law. Um, I want to, I know we're coming up to time. This is such an important topic. So I want to carve out space for one more question. First of all, I just want to say thank you for your uh, vulnerability. I have a younger sister who deals with mental health illness, and it's been a huge process trying to figure out my role in this. Uh, I took the Be There certificate, so thank you for sharing that. One other question that I have is, are there any other resources you might point um, people to to not only educate themselves, but for instance, uh, like my sister struggles to make friends, so I don't know if there's like communities out there or places for people to find jobs or just anything
0: that you know of that you might point people who have family members or friends in that community, what how to educate themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a, a lot of power in reading and in memoirs. And I think if you take any stripe of neurodiversity, there's actually three or five or seven great books that have been written. And I think as family members, that, that can help a lot. I think the National Alliance for Mental Illness is a force for good in terms of helping families cope. And there's some great startups coming up. One is called Akin, and they're working on how to support family members of people who are dealing with mental illness. And so it's out there, the resources are out there. Vis-a-vis your sister, I mean, it's it's she's lucky to have you and lucky to have you working with her on this. And I'd say for me, my my experience of this is like, there's just so much reason for hope. And family members can help so much providing that hope for the patient, so to speak. Because you don't feel it at that time, and to just never give up on that loved one, um, and to help find those resources. And if if, if we follow up, I, I understand they're going to share my email with everyone. I'll do my best to get through them. I can point you you know the way of some other uh, some other resources as well. I do want to say one more thing because I know we're wrapping up. It's a difficult time geopolitically. You know these are challenging times, and I do want to encourage everyone to understand that the impact that these. That this can have on us is a mental health challenge as well and so please be aware of that and talk talk to someone um and then as it comes to the the climate on campus i would just ask you to love one another if you want to be inspired my wife and i went back to dr king's loving your enemies speech and just find a way to love people in this moment and take care of your mental health as well
1: well, on that, we're going to draw this to a close. This has been such fa- such a fantastic um, ETL. Thank you so much, Andy, for sharing so in such a heartfelt and vulnerable and deep way. Um, but for the sake of time, I have to draw this week's ETL to a close. Um, so thank you all- to all the students uh, to, in the Stanford's ETL course, msne 472 and to our ETL viewers and listeners around the world. Next week, we're going to be joined by Michelle Lee, the CEO of Medra. And you can find that event and other future events in the ETL series on the Stanford eCorner YouTube channel. And you'll find even more videos, podcasts, and articles about entrepreneurship and innovation at Stanford eCorner. That's eCorner.stanford.edu. Thank you all.
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.